This episode of On The Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles Curbside Pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Hi everybody, Mike Griffith here. Welcome to tonight's edition of Ingles On The Beat. Really excited about tonight's show. We're going to have Cole Kubelik from the SEC Network join us very shortly. And of course, Jeremy Pruitt, second half of the show. We're going to talk a lot about what's going on with Georgia football, the timing of all this. It's crazy, isn't it? We got early signing day coming up on Wednesday. I know the, the dogs have been practicing. We're going to have a chance to talk with Kirby Smart and some of his players tomorrow. Looking forward to that. Haven't seen those guys since, what, December 3rd, I guess, right? And Kirby is going to talk about the preparation that's gone in for the Ohio State, December 31st, 8 p.m., Mercedes-Benz Stadium, Georgia, a seven-point favorite. Uh, and then, of course, you know, potential transfers. Smoke Bowie, a guy that was visiting this weekend, and you saw the pictures on uh, Instagram of the Texas A&M DB. Might he transfer back to Georgia? We know Keely Ringo likely moving on, projected first-round pick. We've seen a lot of these projections Jalen Carter universally regarded as a top five pick. Mel Kuyper Jr. has him number one. Todd McShay, of course, recently coming out saying, hey, not so sure about this guy's personality. I don't put much weight in that. There's nothing documented. We don't have any strong feelings about that at Dog Nation from what we've heard from the team and Kirby Smart, but it is typical for NFL personnel types to try to kick the tires, find whatever they can on players to criticize size, height, weight, speed, personality, a medical injury. We saw it happen with the Kobe Dean. Sometimes it holds water. Sometimes it doesn't. But this is how the NFL personnel game is played for the draft. I know it's upset a few dog fans. Wouldn't worry about that. I think that what Jalen Carter's done on the field, playing the second half of the season, absolutely speaks volumes. So really looking forward. We'll have Cole in just a minute. Want to cover a little bit more ground with you. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news from the weekend. Kirk Herbstreet commenting on Kirby Smart, saying he relates better to college players than anybody else, any other coach in college football. Laura Rutledge, behind the scenes, says Kirby's message to the team on Selection Sunday was, hey, you've got to be able to find your motivation. Some news, Bill Norton, defensive tackle, the only Georgia transfer to date. He's landed at Arizona. It's a good situation for him. Not in the Georgia rotation. This is a healthy transfer. Sometimes you see guys, you know, maybe take deals, NIL deals, you know, take a half a step forward. But I think this is a case where it really did work out and a guy's going to have an opportunity to play somewhere else. Um, you might have saw the news. The Joe Moore Award came out. This is a really coveted award. Georgia's been trying to win this for years and years and years. They've been finalists. They've come close. Last year they were run up to Michigan. This year runner up again. The vote was closer than ever. And I know a lot of Georgia fans were confused. Hey, wait, wait a minute. Georgia's undefeated. Didn't Georgia beat Michigan last year? I said, you know what? Let me get my buddy Cole Kubelik on air to join me. Cole is with us now. Cole is the chairman for the voting committee. And, and Cole's a former offensive lineman himself. I know you guys are familiar with Cole. You've seen him on doing a lot of the sideline work with the SEC Network. Kind of a guru in the trenches. Cole, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Yeah, good to be with you, Mike. Always, always enjoy hanging out, man. Hope everything's yeah. going well. It's going great, Cole, and obviously you guys have created something there with the Joe Moore Award, that very coveted award, and this year, I don't want to call it controversy, because I look at it like there's a lot of really good offensive lines out there, but Georgia kind of getting to that point, you and I talked about it earlier, they're kind of winning everything. They're winning national yep. titles, they're seeing guys winning awards, and there's kind of this feeling of, well, gosh, why didn't they win this one? So I'll, I'll let you share a little bit about the Joe Moore Award, how it's determined who votes on it, and, and what the process is. Uh, we have, a, we, we have a, a committee that is basically in charge of watching the film, scouting out the teams, making decisions on who's going to be a semifinalist, who's going to be a finalist, and then we have over 150 voters, um, all but I believe three this year that either coached or played the position. Um, that would be a, a couple of guys from an analytics standpoint and one from an NFL scouting standpoint whose dad was an NFL coach for over 30 years coaching the offensive line. So we feel pretty confident that the people that vote for this award, we're not just giving it out to any random members of the media. Sorry, Mike, you're, you're not included on this vote. I apologize <laughs> for that. 
Um, we're not trying to take the Heisman route of just, you know, we want people to put it in their Twitter bio and, you know, tell people that they have this vote uh, so we can try to make a little bit more noise with it. But uh, this was the first year that we had ever only had two finalists and first year that we had a back-to-back winner, and that was Michigan. Uh, the vote, as you stated before, was extremely close. Uh, I, as I said, over 150 voters, and it was just a five-vote difference. Uh, it's one of the closest votes we've ever had. And the way that I looked at it this year is is really and truly like just choosing between your favorite flavor of ice cream. Like if you're a chunky kid like me growing up, um, you know, some people like the flavor of ice cream that was super technical, super fundamental, uh, understanding footwork, hat placement, hand placement, you know, assignment football, working together, shoulder to shoulder, staying square, working up a combination block to the second level. Whereas other people kind of like me may enjoy uh, the gladiator style of football just a little bit more. Uh, you know, they, they want to see people be bludgeoned. And it's something that I have, not that I don't appreciate technique and fundamentals, but I, for me, that's just what I enjoy watching a little bit more. That's where I think Georgia really excelled. Guys 15, 20, 30 yards down the field, tracking the football, finishing blocks. Uh, guys on screen plays, taking corners and linebackers, you know, escorting them to the bench area five yards out of bounds, you know, punishing people to the ground, finishing plays. That's what I enjoy watching. I think Georgia embodied that a little bit more than Michigan did this year. But collectively, from start to finish, consistently, uh, the majority of the people who voted for our award uh, decided that Michigan uh, was the better offensive line from start to finish. Um, I don't think that there would have been any issue with either group winning. It's not to take anything away from Michigan. I thought Georgia had a hell of a year. But like I said, that's the, that's the direction that the majority of the people that vote for this award wanted to go. And 95% of those people, if not more, played the position and coached the position. So, you know, it's it's just like I said, one of those deals where some people like it one way, some people like it the other way. That's the way that the vote went. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure there's going to be some disappointed Bulldogs players. That was one of their goals. On the other hand, Kirby Smart probably says, you know what? It was pretty good motivation last year when they played Michigan. And, you know, the fact that Georgia's defensive line kind of wrecked last year's Joe Moore Award winner, look, that line had three first-round draft picks. I don't know how the Georgia offensive line would have held up. So I don't necessarily think that that's a determining factor. I do think this, though, Cole – I think that Michigan's win over Ohio State probably put Michigan over the top. The way they were able to dominate that game, they averaged more than seven yards per carry. And when I was looking on the Joe Moore Award site and reading some quotes from some of the voters, Jimbo Colbert, former teammate of Jim Harbaugh, uh, they pointed out, hey, the way they played that game against Ohio State and dominated in the trenches, that's what got me to vote for you. And I just thought to myself, boy, you know, Georgia wasn't playing that last weekend. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the the recency bias maybe that we saw with the Heisman Trophy. Everybody oh, yeah. kind of watching that last weekend and what an advantage that is. And I guess that's just the nature of it. And one thing I would ask you, and I wonder this about the Heisman too, do you think we'll get to a point in time where we vote on these awards after the season is concluded? Or do you think we lose a little something? Do we lose a little bit of the audience if we wait until after the final game and Whereas this way, we're still talking about it as we lead up until the playoffs. No, I, I think it's a fair question. And I do think that either from an award standpoint, um, you lose a lot of momentum once the season's just concluded. And I also think, you know, one thing you have to consider is, you know, if you wanted to go present that award and you wanted everybody to be there, and we actually had to do this in the COVID year when Alabama won it, we had to go in the spring and deliver the trophy and not all the players were able to be there. And that's not what we want as a committee. We want to be able to give this to the entire group, let them share it together. uh, Let them obviously see the trophy presentation as a group, because it's the only award in college football that goes to an entire position group, not just an individual player. So I do think it would take away from it. From that standpoint, you got guys that are going to the NFL draft, going to prepare for the draft guys that are transferring, going to the places they might not all be able to be a part of it. So not only do I think you lose some momentum from a publicity standpoint or a notoriety standpoint, but you also lose the ability to have all those players right there together to be able to celebrate in winning it. Now, one of the things you do, and, and I know you have a vote as well, you study all the teams. I know you've been a fan of Cedric Van Pran. He's a guy's name you mentioned. And and although it's the line, you saw a little bit of Darnell Washington. What, can you share a little bit about those two guys, what you see on tape as you watch those guys in the trenches specifically, where, whereas most of us are just kind of following the ball? Yeah, 
Well, I think with Cedric, first and foremost, having played that position, there's things, and, and this is where we get a little bit discombobulated sometimes with, you know, grades and ratings and, oh, that group was a 97.8 in pass protection. I don't know what in the hell that means um, because that the people who are grading that, they, they don't know the assignments. They have no idea what was called by the quarterback. They don't they have no idea who is identified as the Mike linebacker, what the front was called. All those things can determine if you're going to go one way or the other, or if you're going to go double team to a certain guy. Are you working to 56 or are you working to 49? It, we don't know that. So to say you can definitively tell me what a grade is for an offensive line, it's virtually impossible. It's technically impossible for any group. Now, if you want to go grade effort, absolutely, we can go do that. If you want to grade how they're managing the block that they're on, like if I'm trying to block you right now one-on-one, -on -one, we can grade how that took place, of course. But to sit there and grade assignments over the course of a game, you can't do that for any position. Especially, I mean, think about center with everything. You have to identify the point linebacker. You identify the front. You're making calls of who's working together, who you're working to, and then you're going to make different checks as far as plays are concerned. How, how do you grade that? How do you grade what a quarterback does in a game? You have no idea what he's coming up and identifying, what he's getting to, what he's getting out of, what coverage he's seeing and reading. It's, it's a safety. To, to tell me you have a halftime grade of a safety? Mike, that's not possible. With everything that a safety or a Mike linebacker has to do in a game, you're, you can't come and tell me that you know their grades at halftime just because you watched it on TV. It's not real. Now, we can utilize that for a certain extent, and it can help us project certain things and understand certain things, but it can't be the end-all, be-all. But one thing that I see with Cedric, having played the position and having an understanding of what goes on, there's a lot of communication that, that he is handling at the line of scrimmage. And to me, it's blatantly obvious that he is the glue that keeps that group together because when he gets to the football and approaches the football, he's directing things. He's talking to both guards. He is the guy that is allowing the traffic to be able to flow the, the way it does. And then obviously he plays good football. Uh, I think he understands leverage a little bit better than he did a season ago. He's a little bit more flat back, keeps his pads level, understands how to stay square. He gets a little bit, it feels like he has a little more power this year as well than he did last season. But he's a young man that at that center position, you don't often get a, a lot of oomph, a lot of push. You know, it's it's sometimes considered to be more of a finesse position, but not with Cedric. He's got a legit power when he comes off the football. And when he works those double teams, a lot of times they're getting movement. And then he's pretty fierce in pass protection as well. So I love the mental aspect of what I see. Once again, I don't know how often he's right and wrong, but I don't think he'd still be playing if he was wrong very often because uh, I don't think Kirby or Stacy are going to go for that. But And I've had a conversation with Stacy about him multiple times this year. We had the Missouri game, and he was very complimentary about you know just how much he handles his football IQ. He wants to be the guy that manages everything at the line of scrimmage. There's not a lot of players, Mike, that welcome that. There's not a lot of guys that say, no, 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 I want the responsibility. I want to designate what the front is. I want to designate who the point linebacker is. And even sometimes if you get super advanced, you see things in coverage. I want to be the guy that determines we need to get out of this protection because this safety is playing off on the boundary or we need to move here. We've got a running back staying in. We don't have to slide this protection here. And I think he's a young man that accepts all that. And he, he's, he's flourished with all of it this year. And what about Darnell Washington? I know he's a tight end, but you were able to see him do his 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 dirty work in the interior line. I mean, how does he look and how does he how does he work in there? How effective is he as a blocker? Well, it's, it's funny because uh, I was I was talking to Stacy Searles before that Missouri game, and I the last time I saw him in person, I think was a spring game before the year they won the national championship. Tom and Jordan and I had that game, and. He was actually the first person that I brought up to Kirby because it was coming off of his freshman year. I said, Coach, I said, this kid is willing to be a blocker in line, like the lined up next to the tackle. And he's like, no, Cole, he, he doesn't mind it. He wants to be good at it. He gives great effort. He tries. Whereas, but you see it, Mike, a lot of tight ends in today's college football, they're just overgrown receivers, and they act that way. They want to flex out. They want to catch fades. They don't want to block anybody. They barely try to get in the way. But as a freshman – which is where you you really don't see a lot of it. I mean, he'd get his face mask right down the middle of a defender. He'd be driving his feet. And I'm like, okay, this guy can go. And I was like, coach, is he really 270? And he just kind of stopped and sat back. And Kirby said, Cole, he's 285. <laughs> and I was like, he's got to be. There's no way. But, and, and the crazy – so I went – I'm talking to Stacy before that Missouri game, and I said, coach, I said, honestly, if I said if I gave you him for six months – how much money could you make him as an offensive tackle? And he just laughed. He said, I think I could make him the richest tackle to ever play the game. He's just so athletic. And it's crazy. The first thing Jordan said when he came down on the field before that game, he's like, 
God, I forgot how big Darnell Washington really is in person because <laughs> he didn't have pads on yet. But, Mike, he has tackle shoulders. He really does. Like, his upper body, he is in a tackle frame. But then he has, like, an inside linebacker waist. And then he has a tackle rear end and, a t- and like, guard quads. But then he has, like, defensive end ankles. It's like he is – I haven't seen many people put together like Darnell Washington ever. I call him, like, a Vince McMahon first-round draft pick. Like, he could go be a pro wrestler tomorrow and probably make a ton of money doing it because you just – you don't – God doesn't make many humans like that. And I think if he decided to and put on 15 pounds, he might be the most athletic tackle we've seen in decades. Um, but then you see him high-pointing the football and jumping over DBs and catching the ball in traffic, and you're like, no, stay a tight end. But what's <laughs> with the, the fun thing with Darnell is what you struggle a lot with at tackle is the athleticism that you deal with one-on-one. And because he's such a great athlete, when he pulls or they run screens and he gets out in space – He's able to manage it. A lot of us offensive linemen get out there and we fall down and we run past people because we can't slow down. We can't redirect. He doesn't have issues with that. That's why he's gotten so many massive blocks in the screen game this year is because he's athletic enough to control his body and break down or change direction or be able to have a good feel where somebody's going and be able to get that contact. He is, he is an extra offensive lineman in a lot of ways, but it doesn't take away from the type of actual tight end or receiver that he can also be. Yeah, it's funny. It's like if you were trying to put somebody together on a video game, it, it would be Darnell Washington. He kind of checks all the boxes in terms of all those attributes. And Kirby has talked a lot about that. You know, when Tim Tebow was talking about Brock Bowers taking a screen, you know, most tight ends, he said, will take a screen eight yards, whereas Brock can take it 80. Part of that formula has been Darnell Washington, as well as the receivers blocking in the open field. And Kirby always tells the media that and we kind of go, OK, Kirby, we get it. But it really is kind of a difference maker for Georgia. Now, in the, in line of the Joe Moore Award, you looked at all the lines. So I kind of want you to give me a crib notes version of what we're going to see uh, from Ohio State. I, I know they've got a projected first-round offensive tackle. Um, you know, just how good can the Buckeyes be? I, I guess I've heard that maybe the place to attack them is up the middle, but you would know that better than anybody. Yeah, I, I – um... This is a group, Mike, that I haven't been overly impressed with this year. Just to, to be honest with you, I don't I don't have another way really of saying it. Um, I know they've had a lot of hype. I know there are a lot of people that have been high on them. Um, their tackles are massive. I mean, when we talk about just, just giant human beings, like we've been talking about with some of the Georgia players, be it Amarius Mims or be it Jalen Carter or be it Darnell Washington, like these tackles that, that Georgia's going to see, they – they are in, they're in that category. Now, they're not quite put together as nicely as some of those players for Georgia that we mentioned, but they are massive humans. So what they do give you is a difficulty to just get around the hump or get around the edge because of their size that they bring. Um, I don't think it's an overly athletic group. Um, I don't think it's an overly of a physical group. Now, if you go back three, five years ago, there were some Ohio State lines that would get after your ass. And I, and I mean – they brought some nasty. They brought some fight. They brought some mean. I haven't seen that. The, the most in the, the most they have as far as that kind of an individual is caged over their tight end. Which, if you like Brock and you like Darnell, watch number nine for Ohio State. That dude is fun to watch. Like he is a filthy football player in a very positive way. Um, but I just don't think the makeup of their offensive line really is that. And I. If Georgia can find a legitimate edge presence, I do think they can affect the pocket that way. I think it's going to have to be mostly speed because if you can get a guy that can get a little bit of a jump on the snap count and can dip and rip and can stay flexible and bend, and Georgia has some younger guys that can do that, then I think you're going to have a chance affecting the quarterback and affecting the pocket. The difference inside is, and I don't think they're as capable physically inside, but the problem there is, this is not an Ohio State offense that lives over the middle of the field. Uh, there have been certain offenses over the last few years where quarterback relies a lot on stepping up in the pocket and delivering the ball, and they attack the middle of the field. Like, you think about that 2019 LSU offense. I mean, Joe Burrow would step up, 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 boom, attack the middle of the field. To me, Ohio State attacks the perimeter a lot more, and so they don't. if you dent the pocket, I don't think it's quite as effective because Stroud doesn't want to run, so he's not, he's not looking to get out of the pocket. And so I think he stays deeper in the pocket more times than not. So if Georgia can find an edge presence, that's how I think they can affect the pocket a little bit more. But I don't look at this group and say, oh, I think they'll just handle, you know, the Georgia defensive front or the Georgia front seven. I, 
I don't really see that at all. Um, I've had people call into my show in Birmingham and try to tell Greg and I that this Ohio State team is going to run right at them, that the running backs are going to be healthy and they're going to go north and south. And I, I don't see that. Um, and honestly, after the SEC championship game, I think I would probably take the mantra in of throwing the ball as much as I could. Because I, I just I don't think the run game is going to be there for Ohio State, regardless of how talented they are at tailback. So I think Georgia has – and here's the other part is, when, when you're as big as some of those Ohio State offensive linemen are, you're not very good laterally. And so with the way that Georgia runs and operates their pressures, and this is not really new to this year. This has been happening under Kirby for a while. Georgia is the most precision-based pressure team that I have studied this year. And what I say when I say that, what I mean is when you have a defensive tackle and a linebacker and the D tackle is going to go in and the linebacker is going to loop around, those that linebacker will have enough patience and he will hug that butt cheek of that defensive tackle until the very last second and then he'll pop out and he'll get north and south as opposed to where some guys are just, you know, that D tackle will slant too fast and then it's just you're, you're kind of out wide. You have to redirect back in. You don't get that from this Georgia front seven. I mean, it is precision pressure in every way possible, the pride that the defensive linemen or linebackers take in being the penetrator, the first one through, essentially you're attacking one offensive lineman, and you know you're probably not going to get to the quarterback on that play. Your job is to knock the center off his track so he can't switch up on a twist. This group takes a lot of pride in that, and there's not a lot of groups out there that do that. A lot of guys, the other teams, they'll penetrate, but then they still want to kind of get back in and go attack the quarterback. Not this group. They are on a mission to make that first guy pay the price for even being there, knowing it's going to create the space for the loop man. I mean, it's team football is what it is. And you have to have buy-in to do that. You can't, you don't just you don't just tell your guys, okay, it's going to work if we do this. The players have to believe, all right, I'll sacrifice myself on this play because I know the other guy's going to be able to get there and get home and it'll be better for all of us. I don't know if laterally this Ohio State offensive line is athletic enough to continuously be able to stop that, which means They'll probably go more slide protection, more gap protection. Well, Kirby's got slide busters that they can run also, and Glenn Schumann has put those in. I've seen them operate those at times. Um, and then, too, that's going to limit the amount of time you have in the pocket because that's quick protection. So C.J. Stroud's going to have to get the ball out. That gives you some advantages in coverage. You want to play a little bit tighter. You know the ball's coming out faster. You're not going to have to worry about double moves and things going up over the top. So that's kind of how I see this one going for the Georgia defense. Um, are they talented at receiver? Yes. Is there a lot of arm talent in that quarterback? Absolutely. But I think they'll have to be one-dimensional. And when you give Glenn Schumann and Kirby Smart this much time to, to prepare against a one-dimensional football team, you have some real advantages. Yeah, really asking for trouble. And Jordan Davies used to say, two on me, somebody's free, you know, to your point about the level of buy-in. Last question for you, Cole. In studying all these offensive lines, specifically in the SEC, maybe you saw some Oregon – how disruptive is Jalen Carter? You've seen some great pass rushers, some great defensive linemen over the last, well, really, last 10 years or so. Where, where does Jalen Carter stack up with some of the better defensive linemen you've seen? When he hits that switch, Mike, he's, he's as good as anybody I've seen. And, it, you know, the difference is, once again, the physical makeup. To just be as big and stout as he is and to have the lateral quickness, when, you, when, they, when he gets a one-way go, uh, like you saw him win across the face in that short yardage situation in the SEC championship game. Like, you're not going to cut him off when he's got a one-way go and he's just going. Um, but then when he two-gaps you, and so he strikes and sheds, I mean, he is in full control of that offensive lineman if he gets his hands on him. So other, other defensive linemen have some of those things or two of those things. You don't usually have the mass, the quickness, the power – and the technique and fundamentals and how to use your hands. I mean, some of the swim moves that I've seen him give centers and guards this year, he looks like a 260-pounder doing that kind of stuff. So, you know, I go back to, you know, when I was in school, I played Stroud and Seymour. Uh, I played Gerard Warren, who was the number three overall pick at Florida. And so I got a pretty good level of guys who I comp as far as being that big, being able to move that way. And when he's on – He's absolutely in that category as one of the most dominant, disruptive defensive linemen that I have seen. Wow. Fascinating stuff, Cole. Great stuff. Well, Cole, you got your daily show with Greg McElroy and WJOX. Uh, always appreciate uh, when I have an opportunity to go on your show. Certainly appreciate your work on the SEC Network as well. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to take my halftime break. When I come back, Jeremy Pruitt.
uh, is going to join. We had a, a former Auburn player, Cole, who speaks SEC language, knows it all. Hey, I'll back. tell you this got- real quick, Mike. I'll tell you this. I was yeah. asked this on an interview today. Favorite coach that we get to meet with in our TV meetings, Jeremy Pruitt, all-time number one. All-time. All-time number one. I'll have to, I'm going mean, to talk. Him. You talk about pure, unadulterated honesty with some humor and some dry wit, and then you throw in that accent in there, and, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's game over. Every meeting, we used to sit down with him, and he would say, Man, y'all really just get paid to watch film? And that's all y'all do? That's it? And I would, man, I, would, I would trade jobs with y'all today. I'm like, well, Jeremy, if you knew how much money we made, you wouldn't trade with us. Like, I would take your salary today. He's great. I love Jeremy the best and, and knows ball as well. Like once we started diving into football, I mean, he can sit there and break it down as well as anybody. So tell him I said hello. I, we miss meeting with him because he is – he is one of the most entertaining, most enjoyable meetings of any head coach we would ever have. I'll pass that on. I'm sure Jeremy will appreciate that. We're going to take our break. Give our sponsor, Ingles, some recognition and credit. Appreciate Ingles. When we come back, Jeremy Pruitt will join the program. That Ingles sells more organics than any other store, or that they run their own dairy, or that they only serve USDA choice and prime meat? Did you know that they have more local craft beer than any place else, or that they have energy smart stores, or that they professionally slice and package imported cheese from Europe? Did you know about their giant international aisle, local farm partnerships, curbside pickup, wine department, or that they donate 3,956 meals a day to local food banks? Well, now you do. It's all in the bag. Ingles, low prices, love the savings. Well, Jeremy, welcome to the program. I don't know if you got to hear Cole do his impression to you. Was that a was that a good impression? You think you got the accent down? Hey, I, I didn't even hear it. I've been I've been trying to put together toys, so I didn't get to hear any of it. Well, he told us just just a few moments ago. He said that you were the all time favorite coach interview for the SEC Network staff because of your sense of humor, knowledge of football. And you were your wonderment that they were paid to watch football, how much you appreciated that these guys actually got paid to watch film. So Cole's a guy, I think you missed playing against him by a few years. I think he was at Auburn right around the time you were finishing up your career uh, at Alabama. He followed you. But it was interesting because he said he appreciated your honesty and your football IQ. And, you know, I guess I would just start out by asking you, you know, this Joe Moore Award that, that Cole and this group have created – I think this is the only team award that we've seen. And I'm sure when you were at Tennessee, you were aware of it. What about this award? What's the value of having a team award like that instead of an individual award? Well, I think, it, it, you know, first of all, the offensive linemen, right? They hardly ever get recognized. You know, they only get recognized if they give up sacks. <laughs> they give up negative plays, you know. And usually these guys are kind of your heart and soul of your football team. Um you talk about leadership and toughness, um, you know, for for some reason, my my whole life, I've kind of gravitated to the old line. I don't know if it's because I look like them, I'm built like them, I don't understand why. But, um, you know, they kind of set the tempo for the team, you know, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, so it's kind of one of those deals, you know, when you, you remember when we grew up on the playground, right, you know, there was a few people that you knew stay away from them, right? You could push your limit so far, but make sure you don't you don't go too far, right? That's kind of the way the old linemen are. They're usually kind of soft-spoken, but when they speak, everybody listens. Yeah, it can get kind of nasty, you know. Uh, one of the guys you used to work for, Coach Former, uh, looked, looked kind of vanilla on the outside, but I'd, I'd see him get heated up every now and then at, at those Tennessee practices. Well, Jeremy, the bowl season started, and – you know, I watched the Florida-Oregon State game I, just out of curiosity. And, and listen, I understand that Anthony Richardson wasn't out there and their leading tackler, Ventrell Miller, was missing as well. And Justin Shorter, the number two. But you're still thinking, you know, hey, this is a this is an SEC team. This is a SEC team that beat the Pac-12 champs, Utah, very beginning of the year. Although you, you told me you thought if they played that game 10 times, Utah would win seven or eight of them. And Oregon State just put it on them. And I... I guess I would ask you, you've been in the huddle uh, as a coach, as a player. Uh, what were we watching there? Was that just one team that wanted to be there more than the other? Well, I think Oregon State's a much better team than Florida at this point in the season. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit alarming 
uh, to me for Florida and, and how much they regressed uh, as the season went. It probably uh, shows the amount or lack of uh, depth that they have within the program. You know, they obviously, you know, hey, it's hard to have a good quarterback, right? It's hard to find one. You know, look at the NFL. It's hard to find one guy. But they had a guy that uh, could produce uh, with his feet, probably more more so than his arm. But he does have some arm talent. But when he didn't play in the game, um, they struggled offensively, really couldn't move the football. But, uh, I, I mean, watching the game, Oregon State's a lot better than Florida, you know. And, um, hey, I, I – Rob Sale is a really good friend of mine. Worked with him a long time. I was working with him at New York Giants. <clears throat> I knew that he was going to go with Billy to Florida, and I told him, I said, hey, I'm going to tell you, when it, when you talk about team talent, you're going to inherit probably the least talented Florida roster in the last 40 years, you know? So lucky for them, lucky for them, you have the portal, unlimited people that you can sign. So there's an opportunity to flip a roster, uh, and I do think that there's good coaches there uh, that understand that what it takes to win in this league. But I think it also shows how far they are away from actually being able to put a product out there that people that when you associate Florida football, that wasn't it on Saturday and it hadn't been it most of the year. So they've got a long ways to go. Yeah, it's been a minute. You know, this is the first time since 1978, 1979 that Florida's had back to back losing season six and seven under Dan Mullen, a little bit of a tailspin. And then this year, really that loss at Vanderbilt, you know, that's the one you just can't excuse. I mean, a Florida state rivalry loss. Okay. As you said, a well-oiled Oregon state team with an opportunity to win 10 games for, you know, really only the third time in school history, big opportunity, a team that was really clicking that beat the Oregon ducks. You say, all right, you know, you're playing a hot team, but man, Losing up there at Vanderbilt, I think that's the regression that you really point to and say, hey, where was your head at? Where was the program at? And, and you got to wonder a little bit about Billy Napier now. I mean, going into year two, and, you know, I think you went through a little bit of this yourself. You know, that first year taking over a new roster and, you know, maybe the guys that are in the program don't exactly fit your scheme. In fact, I remember wondering that about you. I thought, you know, uh, Butch Jones was a guy that ran a lot of spread stuff. Whereas I thought you would be more conventional, a little bit more pro style, a little bit more balanced. And I said, how does Jeremy get his guys in there while at the same time winning with, with what's left? And, and I guess I would ask you just how challenging is that? And what's the next big step now for, for Billy Napier? You were able to win eight games in a row at one point at Tennessee. Does Napier have the players to be able to do that? And what is he going to have to do to be able to win eight games in a row like you did at Tennessee at, and at some point in his juncture? Well, I, I really believe that Billy will have a plan. Um, you know, you you got to have some luck involved here too now. Um, but it starts at the quarterback position, you know, and obviously the guy that that played for them this past year, he's leaving. Um, they've, they've had issues there with the roster. He's got to find a quarterback. Um you know, I do think they've got a good running back and and they showed some signs this year that they can run the football. I think if you look at the defensive talent on that roster, uh, it's not what people are used to seeing at the University of Florida. Um, you know, so they, they, they're really they need to to me. I look at it like this. Who leaves your program when, when people leave your program? OK, uh, and Anthony Richardson leaves your program. Who do you have to replace him? Is he better than him? Do you have two guys to replace him? Um, you know, because it takes a while for guys to really uh, develop and play at a high level in the SEC. It takes a while for that to happen. So when you have one that can do that and he leaves your program, uh, you better have a couple to replace him because it'll probably take two to replace him. So uh, I always kind of looked at that when, when you're talking about roster management. Yeah, there's going to be some challenges ahead for the Florida Gators. Obviously, one more year of the divisional play. I think we go to one division. Looks like 2024. I don't think anything's official yet as far as Texas and Oklahoma joining. I know there's been some some scuttlebutt on that. We've talked that the college football playoffs going to expand, but at least one more year left of divisional play. Florida would not seem to look like much of a threat. One of the teams that might have been, Tennessee, a team you left, 
We're seeing opt-outs. I want to ask you about this because Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Tillman, obviously two very talented guys. And whenever the players get to this stage of the season and they got a lot of people in their ear, they got an NFL career that's pending. I'm sure mom and dad and agents are all talking to them. And you having been a head coach, NFL guys talk to you. Does it matter to the NFL when players opt out? What's your thoughts on opt out of bowl games for players? You know, that's that's really something that's new. You know, it's, it's really kind of come about the last couple of years. Um, you know, it's something that obviously in, in my time, I mean, you play, everybody played, right? Uh, but think about how the world has changed in the last two years when you talk about COVID. I mean, when I was the head coach at Tennessee, uh, we had guys that that um, were put in quarantine for 14 days because they rode on a certain bus. And then on Saturday, they're fixing to play a, a, another SEC team. And you're like, hey, you can play today. You know, so <laughs> the way the world has changed for these guys in the last couple of years and these guys who obviously are opting out have experienced that, right? So, um you know, it's I'm not judging anybody. Right. Um, the bottom line is, if you want to play at the highest level, um, you have an opportunity every Saturday uh, to build your resume. Um, you know, and hey, maybe maybe your resume is so good uh, it can't go anywhere but down. You know, I don't know that I'm not um, I'm, I'm really not an expert when it comes to that, uh, but you know, I think it's it's a decision that some of these guys have to make. Um, and, you know, we, we are seeing opt-outs, which I think is is frustrating to the fan base, right? So, you know, you, you think about just, for example, any team, right? We'll say Tennessee. We'll use them as an example. They're going to the Orange Bowl. The, the Tennessee fans are excited about winning 10 games going to the Orange Bowl. Well, they want to see the guys that help them get there play in the game, you know? Uh, and I'm just using them as an example, but the circumstances are different for each individual player. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw stones at anybody. Yeah. Well, it, it, and it's difficult because there is some reason why, you know, we saw a couple of Florida guys get injured in that Las Vegas bowl. And you say to yourself, you know, you know, what, what was really the value of that? But then, like you said, I mean, these kids made a commitment to the school and, the fans have been behind them all year. And, you know, now they're asking fans for NIL money and, hey, give us money that we can pay the players. But the players may quit on you when you get to the big bowl game. And, you know, I think this is one area where the 12-team playoff will help. You know, my experience talking to the Georgia players, and there's been a few that have opted out. Uh, a few years ago, DeAndre Baker opted out of playing in the, in the Sugar Bowl, said he was going to play, then he got down there and didn't play. Didn't want to, you know, risk his first-round stock, but he hung around anyway, uh, which turned out to be a distraction. So Kirby Smart said, okay, we're going to learn a lesson from that. If you're opting out, you ain't traveling with the team. He only wants the guys that are going to play. So that's how that was one lesson Kirby Smart learned from losing to Texas a few years ago. Um, and now, you know, we've seen more guys start to opt out, you know, with their draft stock. And, and you know, when I talked to the Georgia guys about it, I remember Eric Stokes. He opted out of the Peach Bowl. And Eric told me, you know what, if that was a playoff game, I would have played. But it wasn't. And so I'm going to work on my speed. He's, you know, kind of a lightweight corner, doesn't want to get, you know, and I just thought, geez, this, this is tough. This is a dilemma for these kids. And the message we've sent with these playoffs is that these other bowl games don't matter. And I was talking to Gary Stoken, the executive director of the Peach Bowl. I said, you know, what do you do about this? Because last year they had a, a non-playoff New Year's Six and, Kenneth Walker set out from Michigan State and Kenny Pickett from Pitt. He said, you know, we're working with the NCAA. We want to give these guys insurance policies. We want to be able to do something to, to, you know, give them justification to play. Whereas if they were injured, you know, they would be financially compensated. So to me, this is kind of a work in progress. And speaking of a work in progress, Jeremy, early signing day is coming up. I guess I want to get your thoughts on this early signing day. Is this a good thing is this model here to stay having an early signing day in december and the second signing day in february what is the advantages of this early signing day that we have it now and what are some of the disadvantages that teams are dealing with well i like the early signing period it gave you an opportunity for guys who had made their decision 
Um, you could get those guys signed on board and you could kind of start recruiting to the next class uh, in the month of January. You know, lots of times you probably had one or two scholarships left. I'm sure um, now with a portal and everybody being able to transfer, people may possibly leave maybe, you know, two to six spots uh, for guys in the portal. It obviously depends on what kind of shape your program's in, right? Um, but I like the early signing period. It gave an opportunity for for uh, young men to get it out of the way. Uh, you know, hey, by, by the time you get to December, these guys have been, you know, they've been on a ton of trips. They're ready to they're ready to get started. And you see, I've, I've seen it all over the country. Guys are actually practicing this week with teams in bowl games. So I think it's good for them. Uh, so I'm for the early signing period. Um, you know, when you look, once you start the next semester, like I, I had a young man call me today that played for me, um, and I and I'm not exactly for sure on the rules. Like he's wanting to, uh, he transferred from Tennessee, wants to get in the portal uh, to give him give to give himself an opportunity to to go to another school. And you know, I asked him. I said, I don't even know the rules right now. What's the rules? Well, he don't know them either. You know, so the education um, for these guys and and Hey, it, it, it's changed a lot. You know, the the kind of the makeup, the layout of college football in the last, uh, I guess, in the last uh, two calendar years has really changed, you know. So keeping up the rules is is a big deal now. Will there ever come a time when there's a sign? Could, could there be a Somebody asked me, could there be a signing day even earlier? Could you do it before a kid's senior year, or, or does that just not make sense? Um. You know, with hey, the way I see it, I mean, I, I go back and look in 2020. You know, and and on September the 24th, I've got I got a I signed an extension to my contract for four years, and on January the 18th, I got fired. So <laughs> I don't know I don't know that that makes sense. You know, so you you, I guess from a coaching standpoint, if I was a young man and I signed a letter of intent, I'd want to know who's going to coach me, and I wouldn't want to be hamstrung based off some kind of rule. Yeah, no doubt. Now, so when Kirby and his staff, I guess you tell me, are they are they kind of the finishing touches? I mean, the, the day is Wednesday. Are you worried about other guys, you know, contacting your guys? I mean, how much pins and needles are there? And how much can you really do to make sure that all these guys that you think are going to sign are going to sign? What, what are those signing day surprises like? Well, I believe at Georgia, they're they're to the point now that they're choosing. Uh, they're choosing who they're going to sign. And there's probably going to be one to two guys at this point that maybe they don't know for sure uh, and maybe not. But where where that program's at right now, they are they're having to decide who they want to who they want to sign. They've got more guys that want to come to Georgia than they have scholarships to give out. Uh, that I don't know that I've not talked to anybody, but just based off what I see from the program and my experiences being at other programs, I would say that is where Georgia is at today. They're having to decide who to take. When we're on the outside and, and we're waiting for the school release that so-and-so's letter is in. And so what's, what's going on inside the building? Are you guys in this one room waiting on all this stuff? Are you working the phones? I mean, what, what happens inside of, of, of the war room on signing day in a football building. I mean, whether it was at Alabama or Florida State or Tennessee or Georgia, what's is it pretty much universally the same everywhere? Well, I would say probably on, on Wednesday, like I said, there, there might be one, maybe two guys that Georgia may not know about, but I'm going to say that as the, as the NOA, uh, National Letter of Intents come in, uh, Kirby and his staff are going to call, congratulate them, talk about the next step. But also that same day, they're going to be recruiting the next class and the next class after that. Uh, so in talking about, hey, a year from today, this is where we hope we're at. You know, two years from today, this is where we hope we're at. Uh, so, you know, I, I see them looking far into the future. I feel like they've got probably a a pretty good feeling about this class. Like I said, there might be one guy out there and Hey, it's always as a coach, you always want to flip one right there late, right? Everybody thinks that, that, uh, you know, Hey, these are the guys we're going to get. 
you know, you're always trying to find, uh, let's pick one guy off each SEC school and let's recruit him for the last 20 days that we think can make a difference in our program and see if we got a chance to flip this guy if we got room for him. Well, I got I got to ask because I'm, I'm not sure now. Was was Quay Walker, was that a guy that Tennessee had because he did the whole hat thing? I mean, when you're that head coach and that moment happens, or do you already have an idea and it's really not – much of a shock because it, it does happen. We've seen Georgia flip pickens. We saw the Quay walk. Of course, Quay's leading tackler in the NFL rookies. But I, was that was that your first year when that? I'm trying to recall. I think it might have been. Yeah. So I, I had a relationship with Quay from Alabama, and you know Tennessee wasn't recruiting Quay. Quay was not even considering Tennessee, but because our staff went to Tennessee and took the job. Uh, he obviously took a visit up there with the relationships. Things changed at Alabama. It was a Georgia-Alabama deal, right? Uh, well, then once we went to Tennessee, it became a Tennessee-Georgia deal, which we were on the outside looking in, you know. Uh, being there from Cordell, Georgia, it's tough to get a kid from there, <laughs> to beat Georgia on them there, right? So, uh, no, but, hey, I'm, I'm fixing to watch Quay play tonight. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's it's tough. I'll tell you, recruiting is it's it's a tough game, and the coaches invest so much time and effort in building relationships, and and it's hard on the kids. They don't want to say no to anybody as as much as anything. They don't want to make that call and say no because they built that strong relationship. So it's kind of tough all the way around. Last week, Jeremy, we talked about how Georgia would work Saturday backwards, like next week it's going to be game week for Georgia. Right? It's going to be a typical game week. Monday will be Monday. Tuesday will be Tuesday. Well, now we're getting into Tuesday and Wednesday the week before. Is this about when Georgia's going to start putting in some Ohio State? And then the other question is, do you worry about the kids losing a little bit when they get that two or that one or two-day break to go home for Christmas? No, I don't think so. I think uh, – I mean, hey, it's – Listen, Georgia's to the point, okay, to where they've been in the playoffs. Uh, they've won SEC championships. They've dominated the East, okay? <clears throat> Don't think this is an easy thing to do. It's not, okay? They're making it look easy, but it's not easy, okay? And Kirby will be the first to tell you that. So they're not going to – and the players understand that. They're not going to take this for granted, okay? They've worked their tails off to get to this point. Um, yeah, hey, they're going to enjoy going home. Who doesn't, right? You know, the fact, I mean, Christmas is a special time, right? You get a chance to be around your family, the people that you love. Um, and, but when they go back, I'm going to tell you, they're going to they're, they're go back with a purpose because it's so hard to get to this point. And you look at Georgia's team, there's a lot of guys that's not been in this situation before. Hey, they might have got on the bus last year and went to Indianapolis, right? But they didn't participate a whole lot once they got there. This is their time. They got an opportunity to put their name on something, to be on Sports Center, all right, to where they 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 put pictures and posters up of them uh, in, in um, the Georgia's uh, athletic complex. So they, they got a chance to put their name on something. So um, they're – yeah, they're not they're not going to not think about it. They're thinking about it probably every moment of the day. Kirk Kerbstreet said this last weekend, Jeremy, and you might have heard it if you were watching the final moments of that Florida game against Oregon State. He said Kirby Smart's better at relating to the players and getting inside their head than any any coach in the country. And I, I thought about that on the one hand, and then I thought about this Darren Lee guy. And you probably don't know who he is. But he was a uh, uh, the MVP of the 2014. He was the defensive MVP for Ohio State of the 2014 win over Alabama, and, and he put up some statistics of Ezekiel Elliott and what he did against Kirby Smart. Said your coach is being humble for a reason. He kind of called out Kirby. Then and then there was an article that said that you know guys like Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers and Jalen Carter and Jamon Dumas Johnson were great players, and the guy said. The only name I've ever heard of is Ringo. And I'm thinking to myself, how is this helping Ohio State? So I guess I'll ask you that sort of bulletin board material. Does it matter? Does it resonate? Does that fire? Will that fire guys up to hear some Ohio State former star, you know, calling out their head coach, saying they'd never heard of anybody? 
or or is what, what's the psychology, man? Because you played and you've seen it at Alabama, Florida State, Tennessee, Georgia. Does that stuff resonate? Um, I don't think so. I really don't, Mike. I I, I think where Georgia's at in the program, I, I I said to this early in the year. I think Georgia's opponent is looking in the mirror at them every day. Uh, I believe that. I believe that's what they're preaching. Uh, I think they know it, um, you know, as a team that if they prepare, uh, they work to execute in practice every week, who they compete against every day on the scout teams when they do good on good. Because I'm going to tell you, unless Kirby's changed, and he may have, but I doubt it, uh, just knowing him, I'm sure on a Tuesday and Wednesday practice, he's probably going to get 12 to 15 plays of good on good uh, for the speed of the game, the physicality of the game, because he's going to preach to his team, nobody practices the way we practice. Nobody prepares the way we, we prepare. I believe that's what's going what they're preaching. Uh, I believe the kids believe it. Um, so I don't think they're worried about what somebody else says. That has no effect on the game. How they, how they go play, how they execute, how they prepare, I think they, they understand that's what matters when it comes to this game. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of buildup to the game. A lot of Georgia fans are getting excited. Georgia with an opportunity to win back-to-back titles. Hasn't happened since you were a part of that Alabama staff in, uh, what, 08, 09, I guess, when the, when the Tide did it. Pretty remarkable time for Saban. Nobody's done it during the college football playoff era. So Kirby Smart and the Bulldogs looking to make history. Jeremy, really appreciate you joining us next Monday night. I'm going to be coming live from the downtown hotel, uh, the media hotel. We'll be on site for the Peach Bowl. It's hard to believe this game is less than two weeks away, I guess. And, and for you, you know, you're talking about watching some Monday night football. How much football have you been soaking in? Because in the past, you've been coaching, focusing on just one team, whether it was the, the Giants or the Tide or Tennessee or Florida State. I mean, what's this been like for you to soak all this football in, man? <laughs> Well, for the first time, I think, ever, I've been putting Christmas toys together. My wife's kind of – I've really had appreciation of what a coach's wife actually does. I mean, I got frustrated for the last four or five hours. I nearly missed our, our podcast tonight, Mike, because I lost track of time. I'm sitting here with screwdrivers. and uh, But, hey, uh, I, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I get a chance to watch guys that I, I had a chance to coach with over the years uh, – See, see them have a chance to play in bowl games and watch guys that I've coached, coached against, play professional ball. But um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I just want to take this time, Mike, to wish you and everybody else uh, and that's associated with Dog Nation a, a Merry Christmas and a, a Happy New Year's. And uh, I hope everybody has a blessed Christmas. We appreciate it, Coach. Thanks again for joining us. That's going to do it for tonight. Thanks for joining us on the Ingles on the Beach Show. I want to thank my producer, Michael Carvel, our first-half guest, Cole Kubelik. Hope you guys enjoyed it tonight. Don't forget, Wednesday, Centel's Intel, every day, 10 a.m., Dog Nation Daily with Brandon Adams. Have a great week, everybody.